Hello, my name is Russell Bennett. I am a cannabis lawyer, and I love saying that. I love cannabis and cannabis law, and that's why I'm bringing you this podcast, Cannabis Law in Canada. I'm also the author of Canada's first annotated version of the Cannabis Act, entitled Canada's Cannabis Act, published by LexisNexis. You can pick up your overpriced copy from their online bookstore at store.lexisnexis.ca. And I say that as a joke, but it really is overpriced, and you should tell them that. Anyway, last time on Cannabis Law in Canada, I interviewed Osgood Hall Law Professor Emeritus Alan Young, who talked about the dichotomy and the balancing act of his life as a law professor and as one of the country's most influential agents of social change through challenging outdated laws in the court. And one of those laws was the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which criminalized the possession of marijuana until the Trudeau government legalized cannabis on October 17, 2018. Now, Professor Young spearheaded the constitutional challenge of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act through defending Christopher James Clay in 1996. And it is the man himself, Chris Clay, who I talk to today. Chris Clay is currently the CEO of Warmland Cannabis Corporation and the CEO of Hemp Nation Cannabis Outfitters. Cannabis uh, is his incredibly rich life. And he came from London, Ontario, and opened Canada's first hemp store in 1993, which he called Hemp Nation. After pushing the legal boundaries for, of cannabis for several years, Chris was arrested in 1995 twice for selling cannabis seeds and then selling uh, small cannabis plants from his store, which led to his constitutional challenge of the cannabis prohibition. We'll talk about his case, the impact of all of it, and what he's up to now more than 20 years later. Well, welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, Russell. I'm so excited uh, you're here to, to talk about all things cannabis and cannabis law today. Uh, yeah, it, it's been a long time since we first chatted about all this. It's uh, going to be interesting to look back. <laughs> it's really, it is, isn't it? It's tw 21 years since uh, yeah. we first met. Um, and it's... It's amazing that all this has happened in our lifetime. Oh, I know. And actually, it's, it's even longer. It was 1997, so I think it's going on 22 years now. Oh, there you go. My math is math skills is very poor. Uh, <laughs> you're right. 22 years. Wow. That's incredible. Um, and 22 years ago. Okay, so I, I want to talk all about what happened back in the 90s, and I want to talk about I want to ask you all about what's happened since, and I also want to talk about uh, what you're doing now, and uh, and how uh, and all your opinions on the way legalization has has uh, unfolded. So I think the first where I want to start is um, if you could just go back to the very beginning. To um, I mean, I remember when we first met in '96. You had, you had already created Hemp Nation. You had already been arrested a couple of times. You had already started this constitutional challenge. But uh, I want to, I want you to go further back than that. If you could go way back to the first experience you ever had with cannabis, do you remember that experience? <laughs> I do. It was, it was quite interesting. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, 
I was in grade, let's see, it would have been grade 12 or 13. Back then in Ontario, we went up to grade 13. I think I was the last cohort that went that far. Um, And I remember it was lunchtime and we just went to a friend's house and uh, he had some hash and he had, um, he was doing something called bottle tokes. He had this little homemade thing he'd made out of a bottle and um, I guess he put a bit of hash on a cigarette and put it in the bottle. Anyway, a few of my friends tried it and I thought, oh, what the hell? I was always curious and you know, I was must have been about 18 by then. And um, at first, I didn't think I felt anything. And we started to walk back to school. One of my friends decided to stay behind. He thought, I'm done. I can't go back to school. I got about halfway back. And the first thing I noticed were my eyes. They started to feel heavy. And then my body started to feel heavy. And um, it felt like my eyes were so heavy, they were just going to drop down and go right around the back in, into my head. And <laughs> so uh, my, my friends were like, oh, my, you can't go back to school either. They led me back to this guy's house. And you know, he was an experienced cannabis user, and he just kind of giggled and laughed at me for a little while until it started to wear off. But uh, that was my first experience, and it didn't lead me to want to jump back in and try again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can imagine. Did, did Was it any of it pleasurable, or was it all kind of mysterious? No, and... It was, but it was just a very bizarre experience. You know, I didn't know what to expect. Um, and, you know, sitting in somebody's house that I didn't know that well and having them laugh at me was it just wasn't... <laughs> You know, I, I think my first time could have been a lot better with a bit of planning, but it, it was just sort of an on the whim thing. I didn't really expect it to happen. So, um, yeah, down the road when I did try it again, I was more prepared. <laughs> right. And was it with hash again or was it with uh, uh, flour? It was with flour. And that was when uh, basically I was in university. I, I, I started at University of Western Ontario. I realized that wasn't the... I didn't want to be an English major after all, and I dropped out uh, partway through my second year. And then I went to, um, I found out about a special summer program that Ryerson University was offering in photography. And they basically flew 16 of us to Prince Edward Island for the whole summer to do the first year university program and still photography in about, I think it was in about 12 weeks. So it was a very intensive program. Um, and we were living in cabins by the ocean with not a lot of supervision in us in the evenings. And one of the students was having Federal Express bring in these shipments every, you know, maybe once a week, every couple of, maybe twice a week uh, of some weed. And by the end of the summer, I think all of us except one were, were using it regularly. And it was quite a mind-opening summer. We're, you know, sitting there by the summer, uh, by the ocean all summer, taking pictures, and they had a vast documentary collection. So we'd be getting stoned and watching Noam Chomsky and uh, Koya Nascotsi and all these, yes. you know, all kinds of things. That it just blew my mind. So by the end of the that summer, um, I was deep into cannabis, but I was also quite concerned what the health effects were going to be because throughout high school back then, you know, this is your brain on drugs and yes. I thought, well, am I going to have children with three heads? You know, what's yes. it going to do to my to everything? <laughs> That's right, yes. <laughs> yeah, so um, once I got back into second year in Toronto, um, I was actually used to this high-paced, intense class, pro- um, the pace, and I, I had found I had a lot of free time in my hands, so I started going to the library just out of curiosity. What what did all that marijuana use do to me? And <laughs> is right. it all okay? Right. And right away, I was, you know, I didn't have to dig very deep to find... Um, the Ladane Commission and all kinds of things that suggested, wow, this really is, you know, there's never been a recorded death from overdose. I found out all kinds of things that blew me away. Um, yeah, and that, that was the beginning of it all, I guess. <laughs> and and so you t- you start learning. So you, you first you have this personal kind of, uh, well, it sounds like the most idyllic way, apart from the bottle toke at lunch, <laughs> but... Uh, 
to doing a photography course by the ocean, uh, consuming cannabis, having this mind opening experience, and then reading all about it to confirm that you're not going to die or you're not going to get some kind of weird disease. Um, where, what did all this lead you to do? I mean, you know, so, some people would just go, wow, this is really great. And then continue on and go be an, you know, uh, an accountant or a lawyer, or I don't know, work for the city. <laughs> yeah. So what did you end up doing? Well, there was certainly some pressure from family. I grew up in like conservative London, Ontario. My dad was an insurance agent and he always thought I'd maybe take over the business. And right. um, there were certainly some pressures that way. But I, 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 I mean, I felt like a, I guess I was an idealist as a lot of young students are. I became very active. I thought people have to know about this. You know, why has this been buried or forgotten for all these decades? Right. Uh, because by then it had been over 20 years since the Ladin Commission report. Um, so I, um, yeah, I started uh, compiling research. I had, uh, you know, a little mini portable filing cabinet, and I started sorting the articles by, you know, medical and industrial hemp and all kinds of things. Um, I started booking appointments with members of parliament, and um, a lot of them agreed with what I was saying. They, some of them were eligible, others weren't, but most of them thought it was a really low priority. They're, you know, and that's been part of the problem over the years. It took so long to get us to legalization um, because a lot of there was a lot of agreement among many politicians, but it seemed like a sort of a low priority thing in the decades past. Um, but anyway, after second year, uh, actually during the second year, I had um, it was just a bit of luck, I guess. I was downtown in Toronto and I saw this poster. It had a Canadian flag with a pot leaf in the middle and it said Hemp Fest at some bar. And I. I had no idea what a hemp fest was or what to expect, but I thought, I've got to check this out. And there was an activist there named Adrian Plant, and he was giving out information. And one of them was this long list of uh, suppliers for, um, you know, hemp products, anyone who wanted to open a hemp store. And at the time, there were none in Canada. And that got me thinking, like, wow, that, what a way to change the law, or at least to bring about some awareness if I actually had a, a business selling this stuff, which you couldn't find in Canada at the time. Um, um so I started out in the summer. I got a booth at uh, Gibraltar Trade Center. It's a flea market in London, Ontario. And I just ordered a few things and thought, oh, I'm going to see what happens here. And I was just mobbed. I became the busiest booth at this flea market. Every other week I would go and my sales were doubling each time I went and doubling and doubling. Um, and then I set aside some money for Lollapalooza that was coming, this concert. And I was mobbed there. I was the busiest um, busiest booth by far and I had enough money by the end of that day at Lollapalooza to open a small shop whoa okay hold on for a second that's amazing <laughs> so you you start okay you compile all these articles you're starting to compile information you're building your case for why we don't need this law why this is uh, an unnecessary crime you're going to MPs you're meeting with MPs to try and change the law and you're not getting anywhere and so then you you at at Hempfest you see this uh, this um, hemp products display is that what happened you you yeah they had a few they had some patches made of hemp fabric I was like oh my god wow and they had had a list of some suppliers all in the United States um, but that they'd somehow gathered maybe from the back of the Emperor wears no clothes I'm wondering that that right. book I think had some suppliers in the back but however they found it they yeah they handed that out to me and before long I was selling the products and. Combining activism with, you know, being an entrepreneur and uh, wow. That, okay, yeah. so what were you selling at the London flea market on, like all hemp products, or was it? No, um, so I was. I had hemp seeds, sterilized hemp seeds as uh, food. I had 
uh, grow guides, which were technically banned at the time. I think that was around the time, um, or maybe it was just after Mark Emery had fought a case to legalize the literature and, and Umberto from normal. But anyway, I had grow guides, uh, some hemp uh, seeds, we had a few clothing items, and also some pipes, bongs, um, oh, you know, okay. things to ingest cannabis that were also illegal at the time. I was outraged by the whole, like, it was all, you know, lumped together under this prohibition. Industrial hemp, medical cannabis, even paraphernalia, literature was, um, the court struck it down in Ontario, but the rest of Canada was still technically banned. Um, so even though a lot of these products on the surface didn't seem like they would go together, they were all prohibited by at the time it was the narcotics control act so i tried to get a bit of everything and say look at all these uses for this plant you know at that and when you were at the flea market did did you realize that by trying to sell these products that were banned and illegal did you did you were you worried that the police were going to arrest you um i thought it was unlikely at the time but i was certainly open to it i was full on in full on activist mode i was going to do whatever it took um and you, so, partly, but, but why? I think part of my inspiration was Mark Emery. I have a lot of mixed feelings about him now, but back then, growing up in London, Ontario, he had a bookshop, and he was. Um, I saw how he did activism through his store. He opened on Sundays. He sold the Two Live Crew album. He was selling High Times magazine, things like that. So I saw how you could combine the shop as a way to. Um, it could also be an activist center at the same time. Right. Right. I see. So you you learned the um, the format from him. But but tailored it to your own, you know, your own uh, special ingredients. Yes. And at first I wasn't sure if it would lead to a store or what. I just thought, oh, you know, I could spend a small amount of money, have a booth at the flea market and just sort of hand out information and show this stuff. I didn't expect to make much money or anything. And and looking back, I actually didn't make a lot for a long time. I was more focused on changing the law instead of um, making money. So um, And were you, were you getting uh, both positive and negative feedback you know where what was the response to uh, you said your your booth was the busiest like what was what yeah, was the I, traffic I, like I, there were a few um vendors that would kind of you could tell they were frowning upon it they either misunderstood or they had some thoughts about cannabis but overall it was um almost overwhelmingly positive support a lot of people came out of the woodwork and they just you know people who um, had used cannabis in the 60s and 70s finally here's somebody just a place to go and talk. Wow. And they would tell their stories of how they started and how they wish the laws would change. And it just be kind of a, became the central place where people would come and chat about what they'd like to see happen. Um, yeah. And before long, it seemed that if I could open a store, I would. And uh, it didn't take long for that to unfold. Okay. Now, before we get to the store, um, looking back now, when you were that 20-something kid, uh, yeah. you know, with, with your booth at the flea market, did you ever imagine that we would actually have legalization today? Did you ever did you ever imagine that this would actually happen? I did, and actually I thought it would happen quite quickly because it seemed so obvious. The evidence seemed so overwhelming. You know, I had um I ended up with this portable filing cabinet with um, a handle on it that I could bring to the MPs or anybody I was meeting with and I you know, if they had any questions or wanted to debate. I had all this information I could quickly access. And it just seemed so obvious that the law should have been changed in the early 1970s that, you know, I thought maybe with some lobbying, we might see some change sometime in the 1990s. I never dreamed it would take another, you know, 20 some odd years. I never dreamed it would take that long. <laughs> and and because it took so long, how how was that time? I mean, we'll, we'll I want to revisit the store and go, go back to the store. But how, what 
How were you feeling as time was progressing from the end of your court case until finally legalization hit last year? What what was that? What was it like for you to to be going through all of that time? Um, was it was it frustrating? Was it inspiring? Did you like how how was it for you? Um, I would say up until the Supreme Court decision, I was optimistic. I was convinced we were going to win. It seemed like everything. You know, I'm not religious, but it seemed it just felt like everything was happening for a reason. So many things were falling into place. Um, and I was sure we'd be successful, um, even though Alan Young and Paul Burstein, my lawyers at the time, kind of cautioned me and warned me. Alan was quite cynical. Um, I was convinced we would win, so I never dreamed it would take so long. And after the Supreme Court ruling, it wasn't long before Harper took power. And so I'd already taken it as far as I could in terms of the courts, and it was very clear that Harper wasn't about to make any changes. So it was extremely disheartening. It felt like for cannabis users, it was the dark times, you know, for a long, long time. <laughs> right. When so so when you when you decided to open up a store, it it's uh it was it a big jump to go from a booth of the flea market to say you know what I'm actually going to rent a a store and and do something like Mark Emery did. Well, um, again, it took off much faster than I expected. Uh, I think I was only open one or two days before um, the local newspaper. I had placed a small ad in the classifieds for probably five or ten bucks, and it said free marijuana, and then underneath in smaller letters it said information, you know, grand opening, great Canadian hemporium, um, which was what the store was called at first. And after a few days, the local paper pulled my ad, and so I sent out a press release <laughs> with some other ads that they were continuing to run for escort services and whatnot, uh, and Global News picked up on it and came down from Toronto, and they interviewed me at the shop. Um, and before I could even close that night, people were driving down. I was trying to close up, and they're banging on the door, you know, open up, we want to see, you know. Right. So I, I quickly was selling out of things. So I then, I um, had heard of a youth venture loan, it was called, from the Ontario government to support young entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And I applied for one, and I was approved. So I got another $7,500 from the Ontario government to uh, get some more inventory and <laughs> that, that that do you do you find that to be uh, uh, the height of irony? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, it, it was. It, I think I was approved because it was administered on behalf of the government by the Royal Bank. Uh, uh, so they just sent a representative, you know, who worked downtown. She wandered over and she said, "I don't personally agree with all this, but I can tell you're going to do well." Like it, lots of people were swarming, you know, <laughs> you know, crowds and going around the store. So she approved it right away. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, and, and so with the loan, you were able to, to restock and, uh, um, yeah. how many, how many, uh, employees did you have back then? Uh, it was just myself for the first little while. And then, um, there were two, uh, two local friends that volunteered for a while. I think I eventually started to pay them, but it took a while. <laughs> yeah. I was mostly interested in activism and as the inventory sold, I reinvested just to get more and more inventory. But, um, yeah, it 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 grew grew quite quickly, but it was a while before I had paid employees. Uh, how so? When when did you open the store? Uh, it was the summer. It was August of nineteen ninety three. Ninety three, and then when did you decide? Okay, now I'm going to start selling seeds. Um, well, at first, even uh, probably half the store was technically illegal, and I just kept pushing it, pushing it. So I started getting more books, more paraphernalia, and um, I think it was within. Let's see. It would have been 1994, after we'd been open for about a year. I had started to grow, and 
I was reading a grow guide one day and I, I happened upon a paragraph that mentioned how many seeds you could get from a single, you know, large female plant. I think it was tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand. And I thought, you know, wow, nobody's selling seeds in this country. That's an important thing um, to offer. That'll be the next step. So um, we started uh, pollinating our own harvests and generating seeds and networking with some other growers to accumulate seeds. And so I think it was about a year after we'd opened when I started to sell seeds. And that felt like I was testing the waters, wasn't sure what was going to happen. Um, but not, again, just like before, nothing happened. I even put a menu in the uh, front window with the seed strains that we had. Then I would see the local beet cops walking down the street and read it and, you know, they'd get a chuckle and move along. It was no, nobody was concerned. That's amazing. Until I so, started selling plants. <laughs> right. So when you started selling plants, that's when things got a little, uh, a little more intense. Um, I had again started toying with the idea of selling little plants. It's just a, it saves growers some time. And especially if you know they're female, you don't have to have the uncertainty of a male or female seed. Um, so I had been considering it. And then somebody just happened to come in and they had 14, I think it was, just small little clones and said, Hey, I was, you know, I know you've been selling seeds. Did you want to take these on consignment? So on the spot, I said, Sure, let's put them out and see how it goes. And I only sold four, and it was within four hours I was in jail, and the entire store was being loaded up into trucks by the police, and I spent the weekend in jail. <laughs> oh my God, that's fast! Wow, did you yeah. uh, did did you have any idea this was going to happen that fast? Uh, no, I mean I've been pushing things for over two years, so I you know I thought maybe it would eventually lead to something, but I, I kind of in the back of my mind thought it probably won't, and <laughs> short of actually selling cannabis and turning into a dispensary it seemed like the london police weren't um too worried about it they'd even told the media before we have bigger fish to fry than chris clay you know so um i, I knew it was a possibility and i had a backup plan with alan young in case any of my efforts led to an arrest um so that action plan kicked in <laughs> as soon as i landed up in jail right and was there uh before you started selling plants did you think about opening a dispenser or having a dispensary in addition to seeds or was that uh, further down the road? No, that was sort of a dream someday. Maybe, you know, I'd love to see co coffee shops like they had in Amsterdam, but uh, there were no concrete plans to do that. Although it did seem the way I've been pushing things, if they had left me alone, maybe a year or two down the road, I might've tried that. It's hard to say. Right. What was jail like? Um, jail, I, let's see, I just remember being extremely angry that I was put in this situation because all along I knew that I was right. I was, had truth on my side. I had the facts. And so, um, you know, I just felt very, you know, I felt, um, you know, like it was a huge injustice. So I kind of steamed over the weekend. As my lawyers explain that they often do these arrests on a Friday late in the day because there won't be a judge available for any bail hearing. So right. you know, they kind of make you sit there and stew for the weekend. But by the time I got out, I, you know, I just couldn't wait to uh, to get started and get back on my feet, which is what I did. I restocked the store. I um, called Alan Young right away, and we got together and uh, started planning the constitutional challenge. Amazing. Amazing how uh, the attempt to restrain you and prevent you from uh, continuing your activities actually galvanized you into the next chapter. It did. <laughs> so... What at, at what point did you um, engage Alan um, before the arrest? Because you said that you had plans with him before. What, so what were some of those plans, and, and how did you meet him, and how did that all 
Was that part of your research, was to find a lawyer that would be helpful to you, or how, what, what did you do? Well, some, sometime during the first year, I think I read a newspaper article that mentioned his name, how he had um, been one of the lawyers involved with um, overturning the or fighting to um, for drug literature, you know, the, the laws banning books, cannabis books. Yes. Um, so I, I, I don't remember if I called him out of the blue or if somebody introduced me, but I just remember driving to Toronto. We had a meeting. Um, he was aware of some of the things I'd been working on, and um, he said he'd been looking for a test case, and he thought I would be ideal. You know, I wasn't the typical sort of stoner. Um, I was a young student, businessman, and activist, and he thought I would make a good test case if I was charged, whether it was possession or selling any of these things. Um, you know, he'd been itching to do a constitutional challenge and was looking for the right case, and so it just seemed like a natural fit. So, um, you know, we kept in touch. Um, and then, yeah, as soon as the, as soon as the police came, um, I guess I must've called him from the, the jail cell. I don't remember, but that would have been my call to the lawyer. I, I'm sure I called right. him right away. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, how many, uh, people were working with you at the time? Um, I think three people were arrested in the first raids and, um, another three the second time. I'm just trying to think now. I think, hmm. Because there were two raids and they it's all kind of mixed together in my mind. Right. I'm not too sure, to be honest, how many um, other people were charged the first time. I think it was just Jordan and I, Jordan Prentice and I. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure Sarah Delaney was also charged, and my friend Zach and uh, his girlfriend Trish. But they, uh, I believe, all of that came out of the second raid, which was right before the constitutional challenge was to begin. They came back. <laughs> right. And tell me. Um, if you can go into some detail about jail, because I mean, I've never been in jail. I've never been arrested. And it's, uh, it sounds like every time I, I hear about it, it's a very scary place. What what's the London, what was the London, uh, jail like in 1996? Um, actually for me, it was, um, it was not a bad thing. It, aside from stewing about all of this, um, you know, I had a lot of support. As soon as I walked in, people, a lot of the inmates had seen on the news the Boston, many of them had been in the shop before. And this was, it wasn't like a maximum security penitentiary. It was sort of a county jail. So people were in there for assaults and just sort of minor things overall. Um, so I didn't feel like at any time I would have to <laughs> worry about having a shower or, you know, any, you know, right. becoming someone's bitch or anything like right. Um, right, away, right away. People came up, you know, hey, hey, Chris, anybody's hassling you, you let me know. And people lent me books and, uh, it kind of felt to me more like um, like summer camp where your parents send you off to a place that's kind of boring and you don't really want to be there, but you know you're gonna not going to be there that long. Because um, you know, the TV was going all the time. People were just playing cards and reading and just... <laughs> right. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't want to spend a long time there, but it it's just seemed like... And it was also a kind of a forced break because I'd been working and advocating nonstop, long days. So to have this forced break where I'm just some quiet time and sit and read, it was, it was, it was fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's very funny. So, um, okay. So you, you get back out of jail and then you start launching your defense, your constitutional challenge. And Alan, and uh, does Alan bring on Paul Burstein uh, yes. to help? Uh, so Paul, Paul Burstein was a former student and I guess he, you know, he knew Paul was interested in helping, so they decided to team up and take it on together. Um, 
And while I was doing that, I restocked the store. I had a lot of understanding suppliers who gave me credit and let me, you know, help me to restock right away. Um, and around the same time, I think within weeks, uh, a larger space around the corner came up that was about 2,000 square feet. So I decided it was time to expand and, you know, become much larger. So I ended up moving around the corner, um, you know, this much larger space. You go up this marble entranceway. There was a legal office, a lawyer's office on the right-hand side, and on the left was Hemp Nation. Um, but I, and that is that that's the uh, storefront that I I met you at. Yes, yeah. The original one was around the corner on King Street. It was quite a bit smaller. It was in sort of a a rundown mall that you know I think it ended up being uh, converted into a nightclub or something. But yeah, this one it felt like a huge step up. We put in a stage, a DJ booth, eventually a restaurant. Um, I ended up renting another three or four thousand square feet in the back for mail order and for making hemp clothing. It just became this empire. Really, it grew. Um, it grew very quickly after the, that first raid. Is that when you changed the name to Hemp Nation, or when did you change the um, name? No, that was before we moved, but I think it was, I, I, I can't remember exactly when, but soon after I opened, I hired an artist to do a, a, just a sidewalk sign for me, a big cutout pot leaf sidewalk sign, uh, Andrew, and he ended up uh, painting the whole store, and eventually he became a partner in my mail order business, so um, I think he, he's the one who suggested the change of name, Um yeah, so it was within a year or so of opening. Nice. So from the Great Canadian Hemporium to Hemp Nation. Yes. And was that Andrew Zwicker? Uh, no, Andrew Linton. Linton. Okay, different Andrew. Um, so uh, you you have got this new store, and you've got a full full on business: uh, restaurant, DJ, hemp products, literature, seeds. D did you restock with seeds as well? Everything except the clones, you know, I wasn't about to go there again with one court case on the go, but everything else was back right. to a lot, much larger extent. <laughs> and and at the same time you're running the store, you're also running uh, and uh, working with Alan and Paul on the constitutional challenge. And the main thing then was raising money. They said, hey, you know, this is going to take probably $100,000 just in bringing witnesses, the expenses to, you know, the flights, the air, um, hotels, and photo and copying costs. They said if this goes to the Supreme Court, you know, you're going to need over a dozen copies of these, you know, boxes and boxes of evidence we had. So uh, we had right away the fundraising began. How did you start fundraising? Uh, most of it was through the internet. They had this newfangled thing called the internet back then, the web. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, now you go on there and there's GoFundMe and there's millions of people looking for money and stuff. But back then it was a, this new thing and there were very few, um, yeah, people like myself actually um, with fundraising campaigns out there. So I started getting money from um, someone in Jamaica sent $100. A doctor in New Zealand sent a few hundred. I got um, a donation from a, an Antarctic research base. It was coming in from everywhere. I collected a lot of the old envelopes. It was unbelievable. I want to um, I want to play you just a, a brief clip from uh, Stoned that talks okay. that where you talk you I think it's you and Pete uh, Young are talking about uh, donations, and then it cuts to um, a screenshot of your uh, website. Hold on a second here. My main concern was raising money. Until uh, I was ar uh, arrested in December, we'd only raised about, I think it was maybe six or seven thousand dollars, and we were we knew we'd need at least uh, fifteen, twenty thousand um, dollars. But after that arrest, money started pouring in. We were making more money in donations than we did in sales on certain days. You know, it's a shame I have to get arrested to raise money, but it worked. Uh, we're up to about twenty-four, twenty-five thousand dollars now. 
So I think we have enough to do it right. And and then there's this clip. So I don't know if you could hear that very well, but um, it's uh, it, it, it you're talking about how you're making more in donations than sales <laughs> yes. on some days, and that that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, and it sounded like I was saying then we'd hit twenty five thousand, and I think the total ended up being closer to a hundred thousand by the time the dust settled. It's incredible. And the the shot of the computer, I think I've got of you at home with your um your massive PC monitor here. <laughs> yes. And, and it shows uh, last updated July eleventh, nineteen ninety seven. You are visitor one hundred eighty three thousand seven hundred eighty six. You had yeah. you had amazing traction back in '97. I um, did, and um, you know, yeah, I think it's partly because the internet was so new that anybody who knew what they were doing on there could, um, yeah, certainly get a lot more traction than they would now. <laughs> and did you did you know how to be a web designer? Like, where did you did you do it, or did somebody else do it? Well, I hired a friend to build me the first website, but I wanted to know how to maintain it. So he said, "Hey, just get a book on on this thing called HTML." So I skimmed through that and. Before no time, I was able to update it myself and build, rebuild it um, the way I had envisioned. So that eventually led to a kind of a web design career in between, I guess, 1999 until 2000, 2015. Um, wow. But yeah, I, I was self-taught. I just learned how to do it myself. And, um, you know, we were on a, a budget. I could certainly couldn't spend thousands of dollars to hire a, another web designer to do all this. So I taught myself and just kept it updated. And that helped bring in all the money. That's amazing. So you, and and the the method of bringing the money was uh, the victory bonds, right? Yes, we. I, um, okay. In the basement of the first shop, I had found an old sign from World War II, and it said "Speed the War by Victory Bonds." And that was the first time I'd ever heard of victory bonds. And I did a bit of research, and I thought, "Wow, what a great idea! Why shouldn't you know? Why not try that myself?" So I offered them. Um, I had my artist Andrew design them. Uh, $25 redeemable for a quarter ounce uh, once prohibition is lifted. Wow. Yeah. And you obviously sold a lot of victory bonds. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Have people uh, cashed in their bonds? Um, Pete was the first one. I flew out for legalization and he brought a few and cashed them in. So he was the first. And I've had, um, over the last six months or so, I've had maybe... I don't know, eight or 10 people ask. Some of them have, you know, tongue in cheek. Others I think are serious. And I did say, hey, I'm working on a garden and when I can, I'll redeem them. So I'm working on it. It's <laughs> <laughs> very funny. That's amazing. What what uh, an incredible effort. So you're, you're doing everything from sourcing hemp products and seeds and make, growing your own seeds, growing your own plants, uh, staffing and running your um, your store and learning how to do HTML. You're you're a force of nature, really. What... <laughs> yeah, it was a very tiring time, though. It's no wonder I kind of burnt out by the by the end and moved out west. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I crashed and burned. It was inevitable. <laughs> what 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 does that mean? What did you cra How did you crash and burn? What was that? What did that look like for you? Um, I think by the end, well, first of all, one problem was cannabis no longer worked for me. At first I found, I didn't realize it at the time, but I have ADHD. I was diagnosed later and I had been self-medicating and didn't really realize it. You know, THC helps me focus. It's, it, it has, you know, aside from that first experience, I, I found that, um, it was very helpful. Um, um, sorry, what was I going on? No, you, yeah, we were talking about how... It's hemp helpful to you, but um, but 
it didn't help you at a certain point after the whole oh, yeah. court so case was had, over. So it actually made things worse. And I was surrounded by people and every you know, visitors, uh, other activists, everybody. Hey, you know, let's go smoke a little. And and I found it made anxiety worse. I developed some anxiety in my mid twenties, probably because of the stress. But um, I think I have a genetic predisposition to it also. But yeah, I could no longer use cannabis at all. It just triggered um, anxiety, some paranoid feelings. Um, and what I really needed was CBD, which I didn't realize at the time, but uh, and wasn't even available. Uh, so by the time I, you know, I had two raids and the constitutional challenge, um, I had to declare bankruptcy because they did come back right before the constitutional challenge, seized everything again. You know, I was done. There was no more money. Everything was gone. So when I moved, I moved out west. Um, but up until that point, I hadn't been eating much. I'd been working 14-hour days. Um, so I just closed everything up, passed it on to my good friend Pete. He started up a, a shop in the same location. And I moved to the Sunshine Coast in BC, living by the ocean, had some quiet time to kind of recharge. <laughs> right. And um, and l- let's talk a bit about the the path to uh, uh, the uh, Supreme Court. How, how did you, did you decide uh, after, well, I guess we should back it up even to just justice mccart and his decision and the impact of his his decision first just for, you know to go chronological but i am i i am so i'm very interested in how justice mccart really laid the foundation for this chapter of legal challenges that that came afterwards so your case laid the foundation with Justice McCart's decision, did you have any idea um, when you were sitting in the in the courtroom waiting for him to deliver his uh, his decision because he delivered it verbally? Yes. Um, did you have any idea what he was going to do, how he was going to s- decide? Was there any indication? Well, I mean, again, Alan had cautioned me. You know, he said most most people lose the first time around, and he just he tried to caution me, but. Um, I'd known all along, as I said, that we were right. And sitting in the courtroom myself, listening to all these eminent, um, you know, witnesses, we brought Dr. Grinspoon from Harvard, we brought former Ladane commissioners, sitting there and listening to all that. And I was thinking, how could a judge listen to this and our legal arguments and um, rule against us? I never dreamed, even that first round, that we would lose. Um, I always had known that an appeal would be, you know, happening, even if if we won or lost. Even if we won, the um, government certainly would have appealed. So I knew this was only round one. Um, but right. still, in my mind, you know, we had truth and history on our side. I, I, I was sure we were going to win that first round. It was quite a shock, even though the judgment had a lot of good elements and, um, you know, some lasting impact. Uh, wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> right. You expected to win. And, and fair enough. Well, you know, in the long term, it was a win, even though you <laughs> lost. It was a win because... The the decision has this list of thirteen points, which is unbelievable for me as a lawyer, for me as a as a law student uh, at the time, or becoming a new lawyer and and um, and filming your case. It was because I had the same question, I had the same uh, thirst for writing the wrongs of legal history. You know, mm-hmm. learning about how it was criminalized in the beginning, in the in the twenties, and and the reasons why it was criminalized, and then seeing a judge who at the time was supernumerary. He was a he was in his seventies, right? He's an oh, old this, guy. This was his last case. <laughs> it, was, it was his last case exactly, 
and it's the only reason I was able to get an interview with him was because he was a supernumerary judge. It was he was because other judges are not allowed to interview, uh, give interviews. So, and and he really laid down all of the expert witnesses' testimony in such a clear, concise list of thirteen points. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. You he know, also appended a, a list that I had made. It was just sort of quotes from a lot of the royal commissions, and he appended that to his judgment too, which I was happy to see. That's right, all the commissions. So you know, he he dispelled all the myths. It's not, um, it's not harmful compared to tobacco and alcohol. There is no uh, mental damage that uh, results. There is no uh, hard evidence that induces that cannabis uh, induces psychoses. You know, the whole, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs with the fried egg, the Nancy Reagan just say no uh, propaganda. He just dispelled all of that. And to have a judge uh, write that in a judgment is, I thought was revolutionary, really. And and in the days that passed, seeing the headlines, you know, marijuana, harmless, but still illegal. You know, um, I certainly, it didn't take long for me to cool down and see, wow, this was a you know, a precedent setting decision, but sitting in the courtroom at the time, I was certainly disappointed. But um, yeah, it did have a lasting impact on many other cases. And the evidentiary record that we compiled was it was huge. And that was reused in the Parker case. It's my understanding and Jim Wakeford's case, I think, too. Yes. Uh, So it helped provide the foundation for some of these other medical uh, cases in particular that were successful. Yes. Which led to the whole medical marijuana program, really. Right, which I think in the end was the crack that eventually became wide enough that led to legalization. It helped with some normalization. People started seeing cannabis in a different light. And, you know, it's one thing to hear the scare stories. Marijuana is going to cause this and this and this. But it's different when you see Aunt Mary's using it for her arthritis. It's like, oh, really? Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, and this is why, I mean, I think you're deserving of uh, like the Order of Canada medal because of your work um, in in laying down the foundations for the the whole legalization process with of course Alan and Paul and you know it was a teamwork but you really got the ball rolling this is your this is your baby you know you you worked hard yeah. to make people aware of this from the very very beginning um so you know i i think that okay maybe what i would would like to understand is what was your involvement with the appeal to the court of appeal and then the appeal to the supreme court yeah, so after that first round, um, I wasn't very, you know, there was very little for me to do except raise a bit more money, to be honest. Um, you know, Alan and Paul did the legal arguments. I, I don't even think I was present at the Ontario Court of Appeal. Um, right. I did fly out several times for the Supreme Court. They delayed it. Um, they actually postponed the hearing the first time because um, suddenly the Liberals were talking about decriminalization again. So the Supreme Court said, hey, it looks like the government finally might do something. Let's you know, postpone this by a few months and see what happens. Yeah, but um, it was mostly just doing interviews and um, I was more focused on medical cannabis at the time. After I closed the shop, I moved out west. I started growing medical cannabis for the Compassion Club in Vancouver. I served on that board. I was also on the board of um, a Compassion Club in Victoria. Um, So that my focus kind of shifted on um, towards that for a while. I knew it would take many years to get to the Supreme Court. And I actually don't think the ruling came out until early 2003. Yes, that's right, 2003. So there's a long time between 97, 2003, six years where you, so you shift your focus to medical marijuana. Why, why shift it to medical marijuana at all? Why not just get out of the business altogether? 
Um, I think partly because my eyes had been opened. Even during the trial, we had several witnesses that came and talked about their medical use. And, you know, hearing firsthand from people how important it was. Um, and around this time when the court case was happening, um, I happened to see Hillary Black from the Compassion Club in Vancouver on CBC News World. And I was like, oh, my God, I've got to connect with her. And I did. And she invited me to come out and, um, you know, serve on the board. And I, I could tell that they needed growers. And I love growing cannabis. So, I, um, yeah, I, I thought that, that was a way for me to help, um, you know, kind of continue on with my cannabis efforts in a way that will have a meaningful impact on um, at the time, it was a lot of AIDS patients and cancer patients. They were the early um, can medical cannabis users in Canada. Um, right. And I continued my outreach. You know, I had David Suzuki come with the nature of things. They filmed my garden for a special. Um, my garden was photographed with me, you know, with piles of weed uh, in Canadian Geographic magazine. Uh, all the and all of that was happening while I was on probation in BC. <laughs> oh my God! Did you ever have any uh, any issues with? with probation officers because of it? No, the first time I went, I, I went to the, my first, you know, right after the, I, I guess it was in October of 97, I moved out west. I went to my first probation off, um, officer meeting and he just started reading the documentation and he said, two years probation for marijuana. He's like, where are you from? And, <laughs> you know, in BC, this was unheard of. And he's like, you must have really pissed them off. And um, <laughs> So, yeah, I continued growing, and there were local newspaper articles. One of them, uh, the RCMP, said I was a blight on the Sunshine Coast because of my appearance in Canadian Geographic. And each time I'd go back to my probation officer wondering, is he going to grow me? Am I going to get arrested? But he never said anything. Sometimes he had a twinkle in his eye as if he, you know, I, I can't imagine he hadn't seen any of that coverage. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Wow. And, um, okay, so what? Uh, let's go back to the Supreme Court um, for a moment. I really wanted to to hear what your thoughts were at first of all being at the Supreme Court and what the atmosphere was like there. Um, yeah, I mean it was certainly a, a somber atmosphere, very serious, and it's too bad Alan wasn't there the second time. I think he was there the first time around, um, and then they postponed it, and he had um, his father was um, having some health issues. So that was a bit discombobulating, not having Alan there, first of all. So Paul had to argue it all on his own. Um, it was extremely exciting. Um, you know, and again, I was very optimistic. I thought, finally, this the, the moment we've been waiting for, it's, it's all going to happen. And I was quite devastated when uh, the decision came down and we lost. Just like, I couldn't believe it. Right. And, and yet the silver lining was, in my opinion, uh, Justice Arbour's dissenting uh, mm -hmm. opinion. Her her um her dissent gave me at least uh, courage that this thing may not go away as fast as 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 it seems. Even though you lost, she wrote a really strong judgment saying that it's not uh, in accordance with the the principles of fundamental justice if it's uh, if it's conduct that doesn't commit harm to yourself or only causes sorry only causes harm to yourself. And 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 I think that 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 decision uh, really resonated, at least with me. Did did it? Did you have any feelings of uh, oh well, at least there's a silver lining here? Or when you did did you when you read her decision, did did you I think? Mean, I, oh, well. I certainly I was very glad it wasn't a unanimous decision against us, and it, I loved. Yeah, I was very appreciative that that her decision was included. But um, you know, it felt like. 
the Royal Commission didn't work and activism didn't work. And it seemed like the courts were the last resort. And then for them to, uh, you know, throw the ball back at Parliament again. And it just, it was quite disheartening overall. Right. <laughs> it was a dark time for me. I thought, uh, you know, I, I thought we were going to win. I was convinced. I, I was gearing up for it to redeem those victory bonds, you know. To, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, so okay, so you're you're on the west coast and you're growing uh, cannabis for compassion clubs. Um, can you tell me a bit about how you grow? Like, what's the what's what's the the method that you enjoy the most, and how why do you like growing so much? Yeah, so I actually haven't grown now in many a couple of decades. I guess since I was growing for the compassion club, I was growing hydroponics at the time. Um, you know, I wasn't using any pesticides or anything, but I did use hydroponic nutrients. And uh, I had to stop eventually because a friend of mine was also growing up for the Compassion Club in the Sunshine Coast, Bill Small. Um, and he was arrested. Um, part of the problem, he wasn't disguising the smell. You know, you, everyone in the neighborhood could tell that there was a grow room there. And before long, somebody called the police. And unfortunately, I happened to show up at his house during the raid. I had this little scooter, and he lived um, on this property with a steep driveway. And I started going down the driveway, and I saw all these police cars. I went, to, I, I froze and went to back up. And one of the cops, you know, waved me down, and he asked if I knew what was going on. And uh, I tried to play dumb, but when they searched me, they pulled out, you know, Chris Clay, Compassion Club administrator. And <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, I still had my gardens going. And unfortunately, I took Bill in. He had nowhere to, to stay after the raid. He was evicted on this, you know, promptly. Um, so he was staying at my house. The landlord, um, he had, his landlord was also mine. And she happened to call the house. He answered. And she was like, oh, my God, Bill Small's there. And so she came over and wanted to do an inspection. Um, and I had 24 hours to destroy, you know, all my plants. I had to burn them in the wood stove and shut everything down and make it look. I was up all night making mm. it look like. I just had a second spare guest bedroom, and that was the end of my growing days. <laughs> oh my god, that's crazy! Wow. Yeah, another close call. <laughs> <sighs> oh my gosh, it 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 sounds like it's otherworldly, really, from uh, from today's perspective. Um, oh, it is. Yeah, you know, at any moment your your life could be turned upside down. I was just renting this nice house on the ocean on the Sunshine Coast, growing my cannabis. It was all for medical reasons, and. All of a sudden, I'm tearing it all down, and my income's gone. And you know, it was brutal. So, what did you end up doing? Um, that's when I took up web design. I thought, well, I've got these skills, and you know, I can work from home, and may as well do that. So, a few people have been asking, had seen my web work, and been uh, you know pushing me, please, can you build me a website? Can you build me a website? Um, so, I moved into that. And another thing. You know, I, I didn't want to be have my whole life defined by cannabis. I, there were so many concerns then and now. You know, I'm concerned about pollution and climate change and whatnot. And uh, so I did take some time to step back and start, you know, I started volunteering for the Western Canada Wilderness Committee and some um, a, a place on the Sunshine Coast. It was a marine park they were trying to form. And so I did step away from all that and moved into web design for a while. And it was also around the time uh, my first son was born. And I wasn't even a cannabis user myself anymore. So it just gra gradually I sort of drifted away from it all after that, um, the garden. I had to shut down my last one. Right. And, um, and, and what about your uh, ADHD and symptoms of anxiety? And did, did they all still manifest? And how, how did you control yeah, how I do you control it? Different, different pharmaceuticals over the years, you know, for, for ADHD and anxiety. 
Um, and it wasn't until, I guess it was 2014, maybe in the fall or early 2015, um, a friend suggested, you know, hey, you haven't used cannabis much in many years. Why don't you just go down to the Compassion Club in Victoria and see what they have? So I, I popped in and I noticed the strain they had called CBD Renee. And CBD, I heard of it. I, you know, I was always curious about it. Um, so I bought some. And it was the first time since my early 20s that I could actually, you know, ingest some cannabis and not get the paranoia, the anxiety. Um, it, it felt very helpful. It helped with the anxiety and the ADHD. So that just, that was life changing. I thought, oh my God, this is the strain I've been waiting for all these years. Um, but wow. at the time I was living in the Cowichan Valley and it, to go down to Victoria and back would take me two, two to three hours with traffic. Um, and that was around the time that Vancouver started to see a whole bunch of uh, dispensaries popping up. They were starting to go up here in um, Victoria, maybe a few in Toronto. Right. It's, it seemed like there was sort of a loosening or, or, I don't know, it was gaining momentum. Even though Harper was still in power, um, things seemed to be changing and getting a new life again. It kind of, I started to see signs where it, was, it felt like the, the mid-90s when I first started. Well, that wasn't that the but, time where the, uh, uh, the MMAR was passed because of... Uh... Uh, Parker's decision. Yeah, so we, yeah, people were growing. There were all kinds of people growing it for medical users, tens of thousands. Um, and then the Harper government tried to, um, you know, switch to the the new model MMPR. where you have to buy a mail order. They sent letters to that's right. I don't know, forty or fifty thousand people saying they had to tear up their gardens. And then there was another court case that put that on hold. Yes. Um, so anyway, I was still building websites and sort of getting to a point in my career where I was making a decent living, and it was. A pretty risky thing to do, but I thought I'm going to put out a few feelers and just see what it would take to open a dispensary. And it, my years with Hemp Nation back in the day, they kind of felt like a decade to me, my decade of the 60s. You know, looking back, it just felt like sort of this, um, I don't know. I, I, I had a lot of fun memories, and I kind of thought, well, I wonder if I could ever have a store like that someday again. Right. Um, and after decades, you kind of think, well, that'll never happen. But I put out a few feelers, and instantly doors were wide open. You know, oh, what do you need? Funding? You need some legal advice? You need a location? Um, you know, suppliers? They, everything just came out of the woodwork. And 55 days after I thought, I'm going to see how, if there's anything to this, I opened the doors of Warmland, a Warmland Cannabis Center. Amazing. <laughs> And what, how did you get the name Warmland? Uh, well, I live in the Cowichan Valley, and um, Cowichan in the local First Nations, it, it, it means Warmland. It's the, the name of the valley. So oh, okay. There's a couple of other Warmland businesses here, and that's where it came from. Right. And your, all your skills on, in building uh, websites uh, really paid off. It's a beautiful website. Anybody has a chance to take a look at Warmland? Warmlandcenter.ca uh, is what it is now. It'll be rebuilt again soon because now we're transitioning to the legal market. I'm working on getting licensed, but uh, War, sorry, yeah, Warmla so Warmlandcenter.ca. It, 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 Warmlandcenter.ca. Yeah. Okay, right. And and uh, and on the site there is a uh, a post by you from February no August seventeenth, two thousand seventeen, and it's about uh, about your case. It's uh, it starts off twenty years ago today. Canada's justice system branded me a criminal. Uh, I'd launched a constitutional challenge to the country's cannabis laws after being arrested in '95 for selling small cannabis plants from my London, Ontario shop, and um, and then it, it, it you post uh, stoned the documentary, mm -hmm. and then you also post uh, the Ottawa Citizen article um, that goes through a bit of its spin on the decision. 
and how they admire the trial judge, Justice McCart, for convicting you. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, didn't, I didn't quite understand that part, but uh, uh, they did see, they did use the word absurd prohibition, that phrase absurd prohibition in their article, which I think was apt. Um, and so this uh, this Warmland dispensary you have now, is it, it's uh, on hold? Is that what's happening? Or what? Tell me a, a bit so about the history. It operated for three years. Three um, years. I started off just myself. I was open Monday to Friday. Um, I only had $25,000 to start with, you know, next to nothing to start a, a new company and get stock and everything. So I started with four strains. I ca called my supplier who actually grew a whole bunch. And I said, now's the time I'm opening in a few days. And he only had four strains ready. So I thought, well, it's better than nothing. I'll just open with four kinds and we'll expand from there. And um, my first inclination was to do what I had done the first time around, be very open, big sign out front, you know, um, maybe do a press release and, you know, and uh, I went to see Kirk Tussaw, who's a, a leading cannabis lawyer in Canada, who yes. actually did his, um, I guess he studied my case um, in law school. And he said, just settle down. You should do a soft launch. He's like, this, just test the waters. You know, don't, he's like, you're not going to help anybody if you're shut down right away. And right. I didn't have the, a deep, you know, it takes deep pockets to keep reopening after you're raided. Yes. So I kind of scaled things back, but I did think, I thought I'm going to be opening a cannabis store. You know, there's going to be lineups out the door right away. And he again cautioned me and said, it's going to take a while. You'll see. Um, so, it, yeah, it started off quite modest. Um, eventually, people started to trickle in and word spread. I kept, like I did the first time, I kept reinvesting, reinvesting, and it built up and built up until we had, by the end, uh, eight staff, um, over 2,000 members, even though we had very strict membership requirements. Um, what were I the only one what? run in with the law? They did come and raid me once. They, but interestingly, they only seized the cannabis flower. They left the hash that was sitting beside it. They left all the concentrates, the edibles, um, and I think that was because the Supreme Court had recently ruled uh, the Smith case that yes. legalized all of those things for medical purposes, and there was still, you know, no way to get them legally through Health Canada's system. So I think the Crown Attorney maybe instructed them to just leave those things. Um, so they seized, I don't know, it was actually, uh, the bins were quite low at the time. We didn't lose that much, and I reopened the next day, and they never came back. And did you end up going to jail? Nope, they didn't lay any charges or anything. Um, and I think it stemmed out of, um, there were, at the time, there were quite a few dispensaries popping up, and some of them were doing it right, and others were on the shadier side. Um, there was one nearby that was selling to anybody, um, certainly anybody over 19 and there were reports that they were also sent you know perhaps selling to some minors so i think they ended up raiding that one first and thought well we can't really raid one dispensary and leave this one that's just down the road right um, right so i think we got caught up in that but there were no charges they never came back they did threaten staff they said we could come back tomorrow or you know anytime <laughs> but how did your yeah. staff react to that were they uh, intimidated um, I lost one staff member over it just because she, um, I don't know if she's a dual citizen or she just has a lot of um, family in the United States, but the thought of, you know, any potential barrier to traveling to the United States for her was the deal breaker. So as much as she hated to do it, she left. Um, but the others were, you know, pissed off and, you know, we're behind you and we'll, you know, we're, we'll report back at work tomorrow. And, right. Yeah. What were <laughs> and you? Again, I didn't have deep pockets. So if they kept coming back, I would have you know, it would have been disaster, but, um, I thought, well, I can survive one or two raids, you know, so I reopened and if they came back, I would have reopened one more time. And that would probably would have been the end of it after that, if they kept coming, but they never came back. Nice. What were your, um, membership requirements? 
Um, so I met with a lawyer first, and we basically uh, came up with a list. First, we came up with a medical document based on the one that Health Canada was using for licensed producers. Um, but some people, well, even now, a lot of doctors are still unwilling to sign that kind of paperwork. Mm-hmm. You know, they're on the fence or they don't know enough about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we also came up with a list of the generally recognized conditions that it's used for. And so if you could provide proof of a diagnosis for you know, AIDS, cancer, uh, chemotherapy treatments or whatnot. Um, it was a pretty lengthy list. There were probably 30 or 40 different conditions. But if you could provide proof of diagnosis, then um, we'd let you in. <laughs> right. That's and, that, and then as far as the quality of the products that you were selling, what was, uh, what was the quality like? Um, I think it was renowned, to be honest. Um, unlike a lot of dispensaries, you know, I went in some in Victoria to check them out, and they would have 70, 80, 100 different strains from all over the place. Um, but I wanted to know exactly what we were getting. And I ended up having a menu. At all all, all times, we had 12 different products on the menu. You know, We had a, some CBD ones, some Indicas, some Sativas, a few weaker ones, a few stronger ones. They were all from just a few local suppliers that I had known for years and used the product themselves, and I'd inspected the gardens. Um, but as Kirk Tusa, my lawyer had predicted, he said, it's going to, he said, there's so many growers in this area. It's going to, you're going to be, you know, showered with samples as soon as you open. And I was like, I was coming home with, you know, bags and bags of free weed. Everyone was trying to sell it to me, but, um, yeah, without knowing the people, I, uh, I took a pass <laughs> right. and we did do testing. Unlike most dispensaries, we started, there was a local lab. We had everything tested for, um, uh, THC levels, um, terpene levels, CBD levels, um, they would also do a mold and fungus test. We couldn't do pesticide testing at the time because we'd have to charge about three times um, the cost. But uh, again, that's another reason why I stuck with just a few growers that I, I had known for years. <laughs> right. And were they growing organically or were they growing with pesticides? Uh, no, they don't. No, some were growing organically. Some were using uh, traditional nutrients, but none of them would use any harmful pesticides. No. Right. And so what, what's your opinion that Health Canada allows Currently, today, 96 different pesticides to be used on cannabis. Um, to be honest, I'm not so sure. I haven't looked at it. And the last time I had checked, the list was a lot um, smaller, so I'm surprised they've expanded it that much. I was surprised, um, too. So when, when, I, um, when I started doing uh, research uh, for a, a book on, on the Cannabis Act, I think at the time, in, it was 2016, there were 13 approved pesticides. And I, and I thought, whoa, 13, that's crazy. How can they allow yeah. 13 pesticides? And then um, when, I la- when I finally published the book uh, this, uh, this past uh, summer, uh, I did a book launch and I wanted to do a, a chat. And so at the chat, I, I did some research to find out how many pesticides are allowed. And it mm-hmm. bumped up in two years to 96. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, on the surface, that does sound shocking, but they have taken such a um, conservative approach to all this that I would hope that there's some science behind those decisions, but you would probably know more about that than me then since you've looked into it more. I'm, I'm shocked, really. I can't yeah. imagine. And a lot of the, the companies, of course, are, uh, are are responsible for several of those pesticides. So I, I don't know if it's a corporate um, uh, partnership with Health Canada or not. I'm not sure why there's so many approved pesticides. And I don't know also uh, what happens to those pesticides once they're ignited or heated. And that's uh, that's the main concern I have is, uh, yeah. is these pesticides are, are, tra- are mostly for traditionally um, uh, ag- agricultural crops, crops like, yeah. you know, uh, vegetables, fruits, 
not for cannabis, which is uh, also intended to be ignited so or heated. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it uh, doesn't make any I sense. I expected at least some of those would, hopefully all of them, would only be used in the early stages of growth before any buds have formed. And you know, that's that, once buds have formed, that's a different story altogether. Mm-hmm. Right. Are you uh, are you going to grow again? I will. The only thing stopping me now is where I'm living. I'm, I'm renting, and uh, my landlord asked me not to. So I have a designated grower that grows for me. Um, you know, it's frustrating. I wish I had a, a space, uh, but I can't really afford to go rent a separate industrial space or anything for my own purposes. So right. I have a friend who grows for me for now. But uh, I'm looking forward to having my own garden again. I miss it. <laughs> Bet it's uh, from what I hear. I've never grown more than four plants. Um, at a time, and uh, it's uh, very therapeutic too. I think to watch the growth of a plant, it, go- it grows very fast, and uh, and then to to enjoy the fruits, right? It's uh, it's an amazing process. Yeah, and I'm actually seeing a lot of this now with my new shop. I reopened Hemp Nation uh, last well, last December, soon after Wormland closed for the licensing process. Um, and so, yeah, I realized there would be a lot of people frustrated with all of this who would want to grow their own. So I, I opened the shop. We're selling all kinds of grow guides and uh, cultivation equipment and, um, you know, equipment to make your own edibles. I um, know people are bringing in samples of their buds. They're, you know, I see pictures of them and um, a lot of people have tried the stuff that's in the legal system, especially in BC. It's very stale. The government here bought up a huge amount right around legalization. And the store rollout has been so slow that the product's been aging. The first purchase I made um, just about a month ago, um, it had been packaged last August, not this not this year, but the previous oh August. Wow. Um, so a lot of people have you know tried dabbling in the legal supply here and have been disgusted. Uh, so there's all kinds of people growing their own now. It's just becoming huge. Right. And and do you see that that this is going to change? I mean, do you do you how do you see the government, especially in BC, where, where you've got this hybrid model with government stores and private stores? I mean, but how how do you see this uh, changing to benefit the craft cannabis uh, grower and the consumer? Mm-hmm. At least, so BC, the province has, has been outspoken uh, for craft growers. They did push for the um, micro licenses that Health Canada ended up including. Um, but Health Canada recently made a change where you have to have a fully built facility before you can apply. Right. Because, uh, again, made it a lot harder for craft growers. Um, most of the suppliers that I used to use are they either were bought up or partnered with um, licensed producers, or they're in the process of becoming licensed producers themselves. Um, but anybody smaller, if you have a, a space that's two thousand square feet or smaller, it's very expensive now to get into it. And I think that's you know the black market is still huge in BC. I think per capita they're selling as much legal uh, weed here as PEI. <laughs> we're right at the bottom of the country. Like it's it's just yeah. Wow. Wow. Do you, do you see I, that? I don't do you think see that's that? going to change anytime soon. I think it's going to take a long time for it to really take um, take off in BC. So what what could the government be doing differently? Well, all along they should have welcomed. They should have had an inclusive model, made it a lot easier for smaller growers to transition. You know, a lot of them aren't going to go anywhere. They've been doing this for decades when it was illegal. Why would they stop now? And a lot of them are just supplying friends and family anyway. Um, so they should have been much more inclusive. Um, I think the price is a big barrier. You know, there's a 10% excise tax built in, even on medical cannabis, GST is charged and PST here. Um, you know, the black market's much cheaper and the price has fallen. Uh, I, I don't know. What else could they do? 
the provincial government here in BC, they made a huge mistake by stockpiling all of that cannabis while, you know, holding up the, the launch of all of the stores. I think eventually all of the stale product is going to kind of get out of the supply chain and we'll see some fresh stuff. That'll help a lot. But a lot of people experimenting right now are pretty disgusted, especially with the, the cost and the quality they're getting for what they're paying. Right. It's a, it's a problem here in Ontario as well. Uh, the the supply issue was uh, the main reason why the government decided to halt uh, the retail licensing, and mm-hmm. and uh, they they had I don't know if you know but they had two lotteries. I do know, yeah, it's yeah, pretty crazy. But the second one, I mean, actually, all of that happened after Doug Ford was elected, and he said, "Hey, we're going to have no cap, no limit on the number of stores." That's right. Um, so all of these companies went out and leased you know, lease yes. places, started hiring staff, and then they said, oh, actually, we're just going to have a raffle, a little they, lottery for 25 licenses. Can you believe they that? Really they screwed all kinds of people. Hundreds they, of business, small business owners are just screwed. <laughs> they did, and they did it four days before the application process was going to be opening. This was in, right. in December, yeah. four days. So everybody was all keen on lining up for a license and no, we're yeah, going to change it. I've talked to people who have paid, been paying, you know, someone, one company has a, a property, a unit on Bloor Street. I think they're paying 10 or 20,000, it must be 20,000 a month, I think he said. They're paying on, on a lease that's just empty, you know. It's just, yeah. it's really caused all kinds of problems. <laughs> yeah, so many people did that. They're, they're just holding, waiting. And uh, I think it's as of July 3rd, 2020, that the lottery process officially will be over. And that's mm-hmm. that's when people seem to believe that it'll start opening up here for uh, for licensing. But yeah, but here in BC, they they I thought we were ahead of Ontario, but they ended up leaving everything up. Well, they left a big part of it up to each municipality. Um, so every municipality has had to come up with their own policies. And my local one has taken them a full year. They actually just passed their um, their retail cannabis policy last Wednesday. Um, oh. a full year after they had a public hearing about all this. So I've been paying rent on an empty space for a full year and um, we need municipal support to apply. Um, any applications that have come into them, they've just been sitting on this whole time. Um, so some communities, there's a few like Kelowna that has quite a few shops. There's a few opening in Victoria now, but there are these vast swaths of the province that still have no no store. You'd have to drive for hours to get anything legal. Right. And is there there's the online store uh, that the BC government operates? Is that how most yeah. people? Um, yeah. So basically in BC, they've, they've decided that they will be the only online supplier. So um, unlike some other provinces, and they're also the only wholesaler. So we have to buy everything from them. Um, and they're opening their own stores to compete with us. It's yes. <laughs> pretty frustrating. It doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. No. So uh, is your plan then to uh, continue on with uh, your new, uh, congratulations, by the way, of opening up Hemp Nation what was it, 20, 20 years uh, after you closed it? Yeah, I guess it would have been, um, let's, we closed in October of 97. So it would have been 22 years, give or take a couple of months. Um, we opened last December. And it's a, it's a huge space. It's 3,000 square feet. It's right on the Trans-Canada Highway. It's two levels. Um, it's kind of a cannabis department store. Beautiful. You know, it's got all kinds of fun stuff, and we've—I um, think I've doubled the inventory in the last six months. And I recently rented a spot a few doors down to put a warmland location. Like every other person who's coming in is looking for weed too. Like, do you, right. where can we go? There, there, <laughs> right. uh, all summer we had a lot of tourists coming too. They heard, you know, oh, it's legal in Canada, and they—they they can't find it anywhere, and they see this hemp sign, and oh, maybe they've got some. And 
Um, so I'm opening a location two doors down. I'm opening the original location and a third spot that I've got in another local community. Um, but I still think it's going to be another three to six months at least before I get them open. Right. So the local government is is now going to approve licensing or what's their... Yeah, uh... well, they finally have a policy in place so that if they get any... Once they get applications referred to them by the province, now staff knows what to do. Before, they had no idea what to do with them. So there's a process in place. They are prepared to start to... Um, look at applications and send them back to the province with recommendations. Um, yeah, so I'm about to submit three provincial retail applications, but, um, you know, there was one local First Nation that they were told they could open in April. They said they were going to fast track it because they already had security clearance from the casinos, and um, and they're actually opening uh, next week, finally. They're about six months behind schedule, so you never know. I'd like to hope that we'll have one location open by the end of the year, but... Uh, could easily be another six months or more. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so where do you see, now this is obviously a, a difficult, maybe not so difficult, I don't know. Where where do you see uh, the industry moving in the next five years? Um, I think, first of all, it's being normalized across Canada. People are saying that, you know, the sky hasn't fallen. There aren't ma- There's not mass carnage on the, the roads from stone drivers. right. I, I think we'll, we might see a gradual loosening up of some regulations, but um, you know, I think Alan Young said maybe in ten years we might see some change, and I think that might be closer to it. I, I don't think anyone in the next few years is going to reopen the Canvas Act and you know gut it and you know allow all kinds of advertising. But I'm not really sure. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of companies fail within the next six months to a year. A lot of the, the LPs are running out of money. Um, as you know, CanTrust and all kinds of issues have come up that are, have caused um, funding to dry up for a lot of these companies. So maybe if Health Canada sees companies failing left, right, and center, and they can't, you know, they can't differentiate themselves with any branding, and they're, you know, maybe they'll feel some pressure to ease up. But uh, I'm not sure what to expect. I, I think I'd like to say in five years we'll see most of the black market. I, I like to think that at least a lot of the people will transition. I'm hoping that a lot of the craft growers will have made the jump, even though at the moment it looks quite challenging. Um, and I'm hoping we'll have a full product range that people want. Right now they're capping edibles at, I think it's 10 milligrams per package, you know, per unit, which That's is right. outrageous. So we're going to have all kinds of excess packaging. And I, I hope some of that will ease up over the next five years, but uh, it could take a lot longer. As you probably know, alcohol, the, the regulations have continued to evolve, you know, many decades after prohibition. So um, I think it's going to take a long time before we see um, cannabis as accepted as alcohol. Right. All right. I want to take you back uh, before we uh, conclude uh, to the uh, the webpage that I, I mentioned on your Warmland site, um, warmlandcenter.ca. And it's the, uh, the title is Cannabis Prohibition Quotes Legal But Silly. Do you know that that page? Yep. yep. Okay. So on the photograph of the Warmland uh, with the scales of justice, there's a cartoon um, yes. that somebody <laughs> drew of you. Now I'm just going to describe it. It's it's you with your glasses. It looks like uh, you're smoking a joint that has exploded in your face, and mm-hmm. the joint says. I think it says something about the Constitutional Challenge or maybe Narcotic That's right. Control Act. Narcotic Control Act Challenge. Yeah. And you've got up a... Up in smoke, basically. Up in smoke. <laughs> and you got a button that says clay and your tie has a marijuana leaf on it. So when you look at that caricature, what, 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 is that, 
What does it make you feel? What is it? What do you think about that? I mean, it, it, it always brings me back to the moment um, right after I got out of the courthouse, I was being interviewed and um, where I was said, you know, the judge just branded me a criminal, you know, even though the case had a lot of long lasting impacts that that one particular image you're talking about brings me back to that moment outside the courthouse where, I, you know, we should have won. Really, we were right. We should have won. I had known it. It seemed like the judge knew it. And um so there's a lot of frustration there, and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and are, are, do you feel like you're a criminal? Oh no, I've never felt like I'm a criminal. I, I, you know, I'm not doing anything harmful to anybody. No, I'm, I've never been a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, I've, I'm totally grateful, Chris, for uh, for your time today and and your insight, and your thoughts, and 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 going back in time with me. It was. Uh, it was great. I really enjoyed this conversation. You're, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It's, I really appreciated it. And uh, yeah, it's fun looking back after all these years, and especially now that we're on the other side of Prohibition. Even though Prohibition 1.0 is nothing like we uh, may have hoped for, it's uh, far better than Prohibition. And uh, yeah, we'll get there eventually. <laughs> we sure will. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Russell. Take, Take care. care. Well, thanks for listening. What a great conversation with Chris. I had such a great time, and I hope you did too. This podcast was recorded in Toronto on October 12th, 2019. The podcast engineering was done by Jeremy Benning at Treehouse. And thanks again for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode of Cannabis Law in Canada.